I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It is something that's really troubling for people, but something that I really wanted to do and why I wanted to write the book is I did want people to feel a little bit less alone in this experience. Many of us hold golden memories that we've placed on pedestals, glorious moments in our lives where everything was perfect. Can you think of some in your life? We look back on these times with rose-tinted glasses, imagining days devoid of hardship. But let's be honest, not a day goes by where there isn't something difficult to deal with, or even just something mundane. Our memory is fallible. And sometimes, with the benefit of age, wisdom and hindsight, even our best memories can become darker and twisted on reflection. This is a major premise in the debut novel The Girls of Summer, and I'm delighted to say that the book's author, Katie Bishop, is my guest today. Chapter 1. Me Too. Rachel has loved Alistair since she was 17, even though she's not seen him for 16 years and she's now married to someone else. Even though he is almost 20 years older than her, she can't shake the memory of the best summer of her life, a sun-soaked island and all-consuming romance. But as dark and deeply repressed memories rise to the surface, Rachel begins to understand that Alistair and the wealthy man he worked for controlled much more than she ever realised. Rachel has never once considered herself a victim. Until now. The Girls of Summer is a gripping psychological thriller that toys with the notion of memory. I asked Katie how she landed on this story. Yeah, so there are a few different things behind the the thought process, the novel, really. Um, I'd actually been writing another novel at the time, so I was kind of hard at work on that and really focused on that. But I had this idea in the back of my mind for quite a while about writing a kind of one that got away story. And I think I was looking to write something a little bit escapist and a little bit lighthearted, kind of in contrast to the novel I was already writing, which is quite funny because when you read the novel, it is not escapist and lighthearted, really. It's quite a dark novel. So it's quite funny how that turned out. So I had this idea of a one that got away story, but also at the time it had been about three years since the Me Too movement really took hold. And I'd spent so much of that time just having conversations with other women, with friends, just kind of reflecting on my own experiences as well. And thinking about how there'd just been this huge collective reckoning and almost this collective horror when so many women have been looking back on their early romantic and sexual experiences and just kind of realising through the sharper lens of the Me Too movement that things hadn't been quite how they remembered them or maybe even things weren't quite how they had experienced them at the time. You know, at the time there was this kind of gloss of youth and naivety and really very different attitudes towards women, I think. And I really wanted to capture that moment in time. And I thought, how interesting would it be if those two ideas came together and you had this kind of one that got away story, this great romance that had really shaped this woman's life and she'd never quite been able to move on from it. What if that was the story that you were looking back on and realising, wow, that wasn't quite how I remembered it? You take your central character, Rachel, and you make her confront many, many difficult things in this. You've split the narrative very cleverly between then and now. So in the present day, Rachel and Tom are, I would say, happily married, but that would be a lie. They are married and they are having significant problems. Rachel, in the then perspective, is a much younger woman having this incredible affair with Alistair. She seems to have her entire future ahead of her madly in love she's living on this incredible island and yet we learn fairly quickly that the events of her youth have conditioned 
everything else that happened since. And I, I said to you in my in my notes that it almost feels as if it's not then and now, it's all then, because there is really no now. She seems to have been trapped. And for me, her coping mechanism in order to get through everyday life has been to tell herself certain things about what may or may not have happened. So she is suppressing what she experienced in the past and you make her confront that throughout this book you really put her through the ringer don't you and, and I wondered whether whether that was because this is the only way that this character is going to move on is if she actually has to confront all the things that you make her do yeah, I think you've picked up on some really interesting themes and kind of points that I was trying to make in the novel there. And definitely when we meet Rachel, she has a life that on the surface seems quite settled. As you said, she's in this marriage, she's got a job that she enjoys, or something she's interested in. But even though her life looks quite perfect from the outside, she is really deeply unhappy. And a big part of that is that she's never been able to move on from this amazing, magical summer that she had. And she's very caught up in the memories of them. Something that a lot of people have noticed about the novel from reading it is that both of those now and then narratives are both written in present tense. And that's because what I was really trying to get across with those strands is that even though Rachel is, you know, I think she's 17 years older now, her life is in a very different place. In many ways, she's still trapped in that summer and she's never really been able to move on from it. And it still feels so present and so visceral to her, even though she is so much older and she is in many ways in a different place now. And I think that I was really trying to capture the experience that a lot of people have with trauma, because ultimately Rachel has, you know, she's experienced some quite terrible things, which we learn about as the novel goes on, and she's experienced some quite traumatic things. And a really common thing with trauma is that many people say that they feel like they're almost stuck in that moment of trauma for much of their life going on from that. And I really wanted to capture that. So even though her time on the island was such a long time ago, Rachel is in many ways still there, and she's still feeling those experiences that she had back then. Yeah, I mean, Hilary Mantel uses the present tense to great effect in, in Wolf Hall, almost as if she was trying to say, you know, we know that Henry gets married six times, but even when he'd been married for the third time, you could never have predicted. So in order to, to write about it in anything other than the present tense is to second guess mm. it. You're using the tense here very much as a this is the only way that this individual can put one foot in front of the other is almost to live right there in the moment and distance herself from what happened and also potentially her own her own culpability in what happened mm -hmm. to others and the fact that she didn't speak up about what Alistair and Henry were up to but I, I get the sense that this character Rachel will represent so many real people in in what she's gone through in, in speaking to people about the story and, and about the book have you been told that this story is extremely relevant? They reckon that people recognize themselves in it. And it's heartbreaking to, to see mm. you nodding, but people must recognize themselves in Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a conversation at the minute I'm just having over and over again. You know, I'll talk to people who've read the book or kind of go to an event or something to do with the book or, you know, even just describe the plot of the book to people. And so many times you'll just see this recognition in people's face and people will say, oh my gosh, this really reminds me of this thing that happened to me. And it's such an interesting thing as someone who's written this book and been so absorbed in this world for a few years now, because on the one hand, it's amazing to relate to people on that level and to be able to kind of hear people out and hear people's stories. Cause it's such a relief for people to talk about those things so many times. 
but of course it does mean that sometimes you do hear some some quite harrowing stories and you know you can really see that emotion in people for a lot of people who've been through this kind of thing you know not necessarily things as extreme as what Rachel eventually goes through but even just having that realization of looking back on a memory that they kind of really prized and really valued and realizing that it was something a little bit darker and realizing that they were perhaps taken advantage of it is something that's really troubling for people but something that I really wanted to do and why I wanted to write the book is I did want people to feel a little bit less alone in this experience. I wanted people to have a character they could relate to when they maybe hadn't seen themselves represented in fiction that way before. Um, and I really hope that the book does do that. I'm, sh- I'm sure it, it does. And speaking of relating to characters, I wanted to talk to you about Tom, mm. Rachel's husband, because there is a crushing and tragic inevitability about that marriage, given where it is when when we meet them, given what happens very early on in the present day, when Rachel reconnects with the love of her life, Alistair. I found Tom really relatable because ultimately he's just trying to be happy. And unfortunately, the person that he's ended up with isn't allowing that to happen. And I felt him really searching for how much of this is his fault, is his responsibility. And of course, there's so much he doesn't know about his wife's past. And in a way, I thought it would have been very easy for you to undersell Tom and have him just as the just as the husband. But he's not. He's really real. And you can really sense him hurting throughout this. And I felt for him and them really deeply because how much can you truly know about someone that has lived through this there is a a kind of inevitability that that marriage is just screwed isn't it yeah I'm really glad that you like the character of Tom yeah he's definitely an interesting one one of my friends when they were describing him said that they thought that Tom was a walking ick which I found really funny because he kind of like that is how he's supposed to be right because it's told from Rachel's perspective and he definitely Rachel definitely has the ick with her husband at that point but there's also lots of stuff in their marriage that is really beautiful and runs really deep you know they've been together for quite a long time at this point they have that thing that couples have that's kind of really amazing when you know you can just look across a room at somebody and you have that thing where you're just communicating with your eyes and you kind of you know exactly what each other think so they're very connected on lots of levels but I think you're absolutely right I think Rachel she's not at a happy point in her marriage when we meet her I think in many ways she's never quite been fully invested in the marriage because she has always just held on to this memory and just elevated it to such a point uh, her relationship with Alistair the guy she met on this Greek island that Tom is just never ever going to compare to that but I think what's interesting about that is as we slowly go back and slowly start to see Rachel's memories of that relationship with Alistair even as Rachel's perceiving it, even at the high points, Alistair is not a better guy than Tom. It is just this thing where she's built her memories up to such a point that I don't think anyone is ever going to compare to Alistair. And, you know, Tom may have his flaws, but Tom could be the most perfect guy in the world, but nothing is ever going to compare with this relationship with Alistair. And that was something that I really wanted to explore because I wanted to think about kind of the power of nostalgia on our memories and how, you know, memories that or experiences that weren't even necessarily that good at the time in hindsight can just become this amazing, beautiful thing that nothing else can compare to. Chapter two, complicity. 
When we meet Alistair in the present day, we soon discover he's very different to this idealised notion that Rachel has built up in her mind. While you can understand how she might have fallen in love with him and convinced herself that it was real, he behaves poorly much of the time. There is a beautiful inevitability to this book, to the journey that Rachel has to go on to unpack what happened to her piece by piece. You can almost predict her next realisation, making for a brilliantly torturous piece of writing. And this predictability is no bad thing. This story is not one about plot twists, but about watching on painfully as Rachel's naivety and innocence are stripped away. I asked Katie why she chose to write the book this way. Because it is a novel that has a bit of suspense in it and, you know, maybe some elements of a thriller. I think maybe some people might go into it expecting a plot twist or something similar. But yeah, it was really never my intention. And I did want to create a scenario, particularly with that dual narrative, where it feels quite clear to the reader what's going on from the start, because the reader is probably an adult who has seen the impacts of the Me Too movement, right? There's a lot of things that we know now that are kind of naive 17-year-old girl in the noughties before we were having all these conversations about consent and abuse and control and power wouldn't necessarily see. So I think, yeah, I think that you're right that there is a kind of inevitability to it. And Rachel, she really needs to go on that journey. And although we're seeing as the book goes along, actually what happened in the in the past, Rachel is still just very much in this place where she's looking back at it through completely rose-tinted lenses. And I think as people, we have such a compulsion to kind of create a narrative around our past. And what Rachel, Rachel's view of that summer, at least how she has it at the start of the novel, it isn't what necessarily what we're seeing as readers. It's this narrative that she's created around her past. And part of the novel, I guess, the kind of slow reveal throughout the novel is her slowly starting to confront those memories and slowly starting to, as the reader is seeing them unfold, slowly starting to realise that they really weren't how she's always seen them. It's very skillfully drawn and it reminds me, I don't know whether you have read any of her work or whether you're a fan, but it, it sort of really re- puts me in mind of Celeste Ng in the way I that she wrote. Yeah. Oh, you do, right. Okay, okay. so, you know, things like Little Fires Everywhere, in fact, all of her work, right, the way that the way that we unpick bit by bit memory, I mean, Little Fires Everywhere is a completely different story, but it's it's a very, it really put me in mind of the way that Celeste writes because as we learn more, we change our opinion and we change our minds and, and we we kind of almost go from feeling sorry to to wanting to slap Rachel and say, come on, you know, I'll shake you out of this girl. You need to, what are you doing to yourself? Mm. You know, you have to, you know, you need to love yourself before you can, Mm. before you can fix your relationship with Tom. But, oh, I'm glad to know. I'm I'm glad to hear that you're a fan of of Celeste because that's what it, that's really the the sort of writing that it puts me in mind is it's up, it's up there at that, at that level with, with that sort of genre. I mean, I'm just so blown away by that compliment. You couldn't really pay me a higher compliment because I think she's brilliant. And I think you are, you know, I would never compare myself to Celeste Ding, but I think that you are right in that they're all novels where kind of the truth is there at the beginning. And it's just for the reader to then go along and slowly uncover that truth. Yeah, I mean, and that's why that's why you read. That's why you keep going, because you think I know what's going to happen and I have to see this through to the to the very end as hard as it's going to be for me. It's going to be a lot harder for this central character. You mentioned consent, and I said this to you in in my notes. This book will be described as being, you know, one for all women, and I and I agree with that. But I also think that men can learn a huge amounts from this book because I don't think anymore it is enough to simply not join in. I think it's it's like everything to do with 
you know, sexuality and gender and racism. It's not enough not to join in. You have to call it out, or at least that's the world I think we should be living in now. And we need to be calling out male friends who act in a particular way, because if we don't, we are complicit in this problem. I think it's that serious. And the only way to fix it, it's not just... It's not just a, a truth and reconciliation thing. It's not just about saying, you know, this happened. It's about saying, okay, this happened. That was all wrong. But it was also wrong for me not to have said something at that time. It's everything from, you know, somebody getting harassed on the bus or on the train or the tube or whatever. And you, obviously you can't put yourself in danger, but there is a huge amount that that men can do that we're not doing at the moment. So I would encourage male listeners to to read this because there will be things in this there will be elements of rachel's story that male readers will recognize that was similar to something they were involved with in the past not necessarily behaving like alistair or henry but seeing behaviors displayed Mm -hmm. by the likes of alistair and henry in their work colleagues in their friends in their social circles whatever and we'll have to live with the fact including myself that we did nothing to stop it so i would I would hate for it to be, you know, only described as a book that all women should read, because actually we are all part of the solution to this. And if we're not reading this book and if we're not calling out the behavior, we're actually not the solution with a problem. Yeah, well, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad that you think so. And yeah, the idea of complicity was something that I was very interested in the novel as well. And I did want to explore. Um, I didn't quite get to the point of exploring it in terms of how other guys are involved in it, you know, maybe with a bit more word count, I would have loved to. But definitely the idea that you kind of picked up on that as in, you know, at what point are you complicit in something? Is it just the people who are actually doing the actions? Or are you in some way complicit if you're seeing something and you're not speaking out? That was something that I was very interested in and I really wanted to explore in the novel. And it's interesting because I don't think I had a particular reader in mind when I was writing it because I just never even dreamed that I would get a book done. It just felt so beyond anything I was expecting for the book. But I think I was writing a book that I wanted to read. So I guess if you asked me who would read the book, I probably would have said, you know, women in their 20s, uh, 30s, that kind of that kind of demographic. But since it's been published, I've had so many men say to me that they've read it, that they've enjoyed it, that it's really opened their eyes to this conversation, to topics like this, really made them think about maybe things they've seen in the past. So, so yeah, I really hope that it does start up those conversations and I hope that lots of men do read it and enjoy it. Oh, definitely. Well, let's let's talk about the process then. How much of the book had you written, prepped, developed before someone else, you know, outside of your close family? Mm. How much had you done before someone in the industry saw it for the first time? I mean, actually, I'd written the entire thing before anyone at all saw it. And I actually didn't show it to close family or anything like that. I wrote the whole thing, edited it, and the very first person who read it was my agent, who I'm now signed with. Um, wow. And some other agents did read it as well. But yeah, she was just someone who really, she was the first person to read it. And also I just thought the person I connected with most strongly when it came to getting offers from agents and things like that. So yeah, it was a really, really solitary writing process. Incredibly solitary, much more so. It seems mad looking back on it now. Now I've got a kind of editorial team and I'm part of a writer's group now, which I wasn't at the time. So it seems mad to me now that it was so solitary, but it was locked down at the time. So I guess very in keeping with how we were all feeling at the time. Chapter three, writing the book. 
Now is the perfect time to chat about Katie's writing process. As you know, I'm always fascinated to hear from debut novelists about their journey to being published because there are so many unique learning opportunities to unpack from someone who's just cracked it for the first time. The Girls of Summer was a lockdown project, but it wasn't Katie's first writing experience. Not only has she tried her hand at writing a novel previously, she's also written many articles for prestigious publications. So I was intrigued to find out whether despite her years of experience this novel has changed her as a writer yeah I mean completely I think I didn't even realize at the time how much I was going to change the writer but I've heard people say before that with every new novel that you write you just totally learn how to write again from scratch and I've found that to be so so true so I as you said I'd written articles and things before and kind of learned some stuff about writing from that but of course it's a very different process to write non-fiction articles and to write a fictional novel And then before I wrote The Girls of Summer, I'd been writing a fiction novel for probably about four or five years. And I'd done endless drafts of it. It was just such a long, difficult process. I'd sent that off to agents, didn't manage to get an agent with it, but did, you know, I had a few agents reading it, kind of feeding back on it. So I felt like I learned a lot from that and then took that forward and then wrote The Girls of Summer with the stuff that I'd learned from that. And then I kind of felt like, right, I learned a lot from that process. I've now written this book that's, you know, got a book deal. So I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm pretty settled in my writing technique now. And then I went to write my third book. Well, it will be my second book to be published, but my third book I've ever written. And oh my gosh, it was just, it really was like, I just did not know how to write a book at all. It was just completely just learning the whole process from scratch. So that's been a really eye-opening experience for me. And I think it really humbles you as a writer just to know that you are kind of always learning and always developing. And it's funny because now I look back on The Girls of Summer and of course reading The Girls of Summer now, I started writing The Girls of Summer when I was 27 and it feels like quite a long time ago now and again I look back at now and you do kind of think like oh there are things I would do differently but I think that's all part of the process as well right it's all you're always learning you're always developing your books hopefully just keep on getting better with time oh if I if I read my early stuff I'm always horrified so you just you learn not to not to go don't go back (laughs) oh my god yeah I was wondering whether to listen to the audiobook of the girls of summer now that it's out and I started listening to it and I was like I can't do this to myself I can't listen to it (laughs) I'm just going to put it aside now and just on to the next thing. The the book that I hold in in my hands, how similar is it to the very first draft that you created? Did it change much in the edit? It really didn't change too much in the edit. So I think I was expecting it to change a lot because I had had that previous experience of writing a novel and writing many, many drafts and it's still not quite working out. So I wrote the first draft of The Girls of Summer very, very quickly. It took me about eight or nine months, I think, to write the first draft. And I kind of thought, right, well, that's the first draft. I've probably got another 10 drafts to go now. But then I sat down and I read it and I was actually quite happy with it. So I did a few edits, but there weren't there was no kind of major restructuring, no major changes. It was quite, it was mainly tweaks. Sent it to my agent. We again did some edits, but again, no huge restructures, small tweaks, kind of bringing things more to the surface. And then working with my editorial team when I got a book deal, again, that was a little bit more drawing out some of the nuances and some of the things that I hadn't done quite so well in it. So a big thing that we talked about a lot was how to think about the concept of victimhood in the novel and how to just draw out some of the subtleties of of what it means to be a victim so I think it was more about pulling out those themes and things like that rather than you know there were no new characters or kind of big blocks of new chapters or anything like that so I think what's out now is I mean maybe maybe if I actually read back my first draft now I would be proved wrong but to me it feels fairly true to the first draft still I mean that's really rare actually because 
I talk to a lot of writers who say, oh, yeah, I cut loads. Mm. I introduce, you know, the final draft, I introduce new characters and, and you and that and that happened quite recently where I said, oh, that's my favorite character. And the writers went, oh, yeah, well, she didn't. That character didn't come in until the, right, the final draft. Oh, that's and, so and, interesting. And so reassuring as a writer to hear that as well, that you can bring in things that really change it right at the kind of last minute. Yeah. And, and this um, the writer is Shelley Reed. And by the time people are listening to this, that episode will already be out. But, you know, this character literally wandered into this. It wandered into the book fully formed as the solution to all of the book's problems, saying, I've been here all along. You just didn't know you needed me. So to hear your story, that it's it, it stayed very authentic and very similar um, mm-hmm. is I think that I think listeners will be interested in that because that doesn't happen very often. Um, mm-hmm. And it's certainly not my experience how much did you learn working with the editorial team? Did you did you learn things about your story that you didn't know were there initially? Yeah, well, so just firstly back to your last point about it kind of being saying it's quite rare. I actually think the thing that I would credit that with is the fact that I had been working on that previous novel for such a long time before. Mm. So it was almost like, even though The Girls of Summer took quite a short period of time to write, I'd almost had kind of four or five years with that idea kind of in the back of my mind bubbling away while I was writing that other novel. And I really, really felt like I had like a story to tell and I felt like I had something to say. So I think that really long thinking process was part of the reason why it did come out so easily when I actually sat down to write it. Um, I think I've realised as a writer, I need a lot, a lot of time to think before I start writing. And then if I've really kind of processed my ideas and really, really thought it through beforehand I find the writing process much much easier very often Katie I think and I find this in my in my own writing and other other writers I've spoken to have have said they have similar experiences very often you have to be screwing something else up in order for the project that ends up going well you know to, to, to go well and it's almost as if the girls of summer becomes the the distraction from the project that's not going well and and you have the time and space to think about it and I love starting projects because it's ages before I'm going to screw it up right I haven't decided where it's going yet so often I find that some of my some of the work that I'm most proud of has been a distraction from things that are not going very well at all yeah the best bit in any writing project the best bit is that first 10,000 words where it just feels amazing and no one knows about it and yeah I do always think your best work happens when you're supposed to be doing something else which is not an ideal way for things to be but that seems to be how it's always worked for me so I don't always ask this question, but I, I'm I'm going to ask it now because I hadn't realised that you'd been thinking about the project for that long, and that that really brings this question into a bit more relevance. But if you if you'd spent that long thinking about this sort of story and, and characters like the ones that you've written, and then the process of doing this, and then doing press and speaking to people like me, the book is now done. It's out. By the time this airs, it will also be out in the US, and you will have moved on to other things. Do you miss? the girls of summer do you miss this precinct and these characters yeah I do because you spend such a long time with them and you feel like you know them so well and again I think you know it's been quite a long time since I got the book deal it's been about two years so it has been a long time since I was actually writing the book but as you said doing all this kind of press now and having conversations with people it does really just bring back it's almost like like having dinner with an old friend that you haven't spoke to for a while and but they're still you know you're, they're still one of your best friends and you just pick up exactly where you left off so I think talking about it so much recently has definitely brought back a lot of that and also I think with the girls of summer I was just so in love with the concept behind it and it was something I felt so passionately about so strongly about so definitely when I first started writing my third book it was hard to 
find a project that I felt like I connected with quite as well as I did with the story behind the girls of summer I do feel like now I have found one but yeah I really missed just having that kind of direction and just the story and the characters and just kind of the whole thing together because I did I loved writing the girls of summer it was such a magical writing experience one of the joys of writing is that as the writer you get to decide where the story starts and where the story ends and what happens all the way in the middle as a as a reader, I'm often fascinated by the prospect of discovering what happens after the end of the book. And in a way, this is irrelevant because the book ends where the book ends. But I wondered if you've allowed yourself to think about Rachel and where this story finishes. And if we were to meet her in a year or two's time, where we think she is, given what you put her through. And I won't put you on the spot, but I will share my view. Mm. as to where Rachel is. I think Rachel is in a better place, but this is not something that gets fixed quickly. This is potentially going to take her a, a lifetime to to process and to, and to think about, but each day will get easier despite what she's had to confront. I think peace for her is not a quick thing. I think it's going to take her some time. I, I just wanted to offer, offer offer that to you. Is that something that you would agree? Or are you like, no, she's fine. Don't worry about her. No, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that's a very, a very apt observation. And I think, yeah, we meet Rachel at this real watershed moment for her um, when so many things in her life kind of come to a head. But you're absolutely right. It's something that it's taken her 17 years to even get to this point in the first place. It's going to take maybe 17 years or longer or maybe never for her to like really fully move on from it. And in some ways, even if she reaches a place where she's happy and, you know, you like to think of your characters, they do find happiness after the novel. Yeah, even then it's still there. It's still a huge, huge part of who she is. And I think even, you know, for someone who's been through that kind of experience, even if you get to a place where you're feeling very positive about your life, it's still a part of who you are. And I think with Rachel, because she did have this big traumatic moment at such a young age, she's kind of been trapped in almost the mindset of a 17 year old for such a long time. And I think some readers, maybe when you first meet Rachel, might find her a little bit naive, even as an adult. But I think that's because she's almost she's been stuck at that age. And I think now she would almost have a kind of second adolescence, I think, where she she does grow up and she is confronting these things. And I think you're right. I think that would take a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I would agree with Everett, not that I've written this book, but um, I, I would agree with that. You know, the, there is a certain naivety about her uh, as an older woman. And, and that is, you know, because of all the things you just said, she has been stuck as this younger woman in the middle of this incredible love affair on this beautiful island that is actually masking, you know, a lot of darkness. And you don't just switch the lights on overnight and get and get over that. We talked about your first book. This is your second book, which has found a way out into the into the world. What, if anything, Katie, can you tell us about the third book? Yeah, so I'm working on the third book at the minute. Um, I did get a T-book deal, so it will be coming out. I'm not exactly sure when, but it will be coming out. Um, as I said, it's been quite a long process to get to it. I've actually started and finished and scrapped a couple of novels on the process to kind of settling on my idea for a third novel. But I'm, I've got one that I'm really happy with now. It's going to tackle some similar themes to The Girls of Summer. It's going to be quite a psychological novel that explores things like memory, uh, some feminist themes again. And it's again going to be set in a very beautiful escapist location with a hint of darkness. So I think there's going to be things that people have responded to well in The Girls of Summer that are going to be there again. Well, that was really one of the motivations for me saying it put me in mind of Celeste Ings, because when I read Celeste's work, I can see it. And when I read your words, I can see them. I can see this 
on screen. I know it's a book, but I can I can see it visually. I, I think I have an understanding of what the island looks like. I have an understanding of the uh, of how the the secrecy that goes on in this book, how that would translate to it being on screen. So I'm delighted to hear that you're sticking with familiar ground because mm. uh, when listening to you there, I can I can see that as well. Um, so we wish you lots of luck with book three, but until people get to book three, which won't be out for a while, I'm sure what they can do is read your incredible debut novel, The Girls of Summer is out now. It's an absolute triumph. Katie Bishop, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so lovely chatting to you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Katie Bishop for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Think carefully about the tense that you use when writing your novel. It really does matter. This book takes place both in the past and the present, but Katie has cleverly chosen to write both in the present tense to show how much her protagonist is stuck in the past. Readers may be able to relate with what Rachel goes through in The Girls of Summer, though hopefully in a less extreme way. As writers, we have the incredible ability of being able to give a voice to pressing issues close to our hearts by creating characters for people to relate to. And finally, not every story needs a plot twist. You don't always have to keep your readers guessing. Predictable journeys can be just as compelling if drawn correctly. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up for the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London, titled Inside Stories. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.